Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. Today, we are honored to be uh, speaking with Dr. Troy Bickham. Troy Bickham is a professor of history at Texas A&M University. He's the author of several books, including The Weight of Vengeance, The United States, The British Empire, and The War of 1812, Making Headlines, The American Revolution as Seen Through the British Press, and the savages within the empire. Today, he's here to talk to us about a wonderful book called Eating the Empire, Food and Society in the 18th Century Britain. Welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Morteza. Uh, before we start, can you please generally introduce yourself, tell us how you became interested in history, your area of expertise, and then more importantly, how this book came about? Because this is a topic that uh, it's not very commonly uh, talked about, food and empire. Um, sure. So, um, as you said, I, I teach history at Texas A&M University. Um, so the way I sort of came about this, this book is that kind of like all things, right, um, in history originate with earlier projects. So moving along in one of my earlier books, um, as you mentioned, was um, called Savages in the Empire. And what it did is it looked at the relationships between Native Americans and um, British culture, society, and the empire. So how those encounters impacted Britain in the 18th century. And one of the things I kept coming across uh, as I read a lot of travel literature, um, the travel literature in particular at the time was used by Enlightenment philosophers to kind of give real world examples of their conceptions of race and gender and explain how society was different. And Native Americans were used extensively as a sort of like base culture, like the most primitive of primitive you could get. And <clears throat> what I thought was interesting is when they were trying to give examples of sophisticated societies or basic societies, they kept turning to food, right? And they would describe this is how they eat their food. So you know, they, they eat it raw. So they're clearly unsophisticated people or they don't use utensils or this society does use utensils. And they would use it in the same way that they might talk about bridges or infrastructure or religious ceremonies. I mean, the way that would, they would describe um, food, um, whether it's um, cultivation or preparation or the actual kind of consuming of the food. And I thought that was kind of interesting. So I, in all things, I sort of put a pin in it. I, I kind of gathered those things up. And then um, a few years later, wrote a related sort of article. And then out of that came this larger project about food. Um, my general interest in history is looking at how imperial experiences shape Britain right, as a whole. So whether socially, culturally, economically, um, or politically. And food was a great way to get at that because everybody eats, right? So um, it's a way to get at the widest population as possible. Uh, just as you were explaining it, I was reminded, I hadn't paid attention to that before, before reading this book, but it quite, it quite sounds familiar when you talk about people from other countries, it, especially if you, you're speaking from a Western point of view, sometimes you say these people still use their hands to eat. Sometimes yeah. it's there are cultural significance. The significant. I mean, there is a cultural significance to it. It's a sign of community or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, let's talk about culinary history. That's a very fascinating area of uh, history. What is culinary history, and how is it related to politics? And in your book, you use a term um, that I really loved: imperial ingestibles. Can you explain? Talk talk about these things. Yeah, sure. Um, so. Learning history of, of or culinary and food history and relating to politics, it kind of does so, you know, in, in several ways, right? So how food relates to politics. And all of this will really kind of sound familiar to a lot of us to any kind of modern 21st century audience, right? So um what people eat says a lot about their values or their cultural heritage and their belief systems, right? So food is the heart at the heart of all sorts of different sort of religious significance and rituals and things that are attached to that, whether any kind of sort of culture we look at. Um, but politicians kind of related to that, politicians also use food to project an image of themselves, 
right? Whether we're talking about, you know, the way um, people might criticize the way Joe Biden eats ice cream or Donald Trump using a knife and fork to eat fried chicken um, was, you know, international news. David Cameron famously ate a hot dog with a knife and fork. Again, um, you know, sort of international news, uh, Charles III's coronation quiche, whether it was tasty or not. Again, something that's poured over by people. And I think part of it's because it's relatable. And then if someone makes something that's supposed to be relatable, unrelatable, then maybe that politician isn't relatable because, you know, they eat something with a knife and fork, they should be eating with their hands or something like that. And I think that's, that's part of it, right? So, um, but in a much more sort of direct way, Food are, well, less so today, but food is potentially, it's a taxable good, right? So in the 18th century, the goods we're talking about were very much taxable goods. Um, and taxation is at the heart of politics right? for, for several ways. One, taxation generates revenue. So the amount of taxation they were getting on sugar by the 1760s, the British um, state was, was enough to pay for the Royal Navy's upkeep in peacetime. That's big money, right? So tobacco gave Britain a very favorable balance of trade with um, the German states because it's largely exported there. Same with coffee. So these are these are big ticket goods. And so whereas the modern sort of family living in the West may spend you know, 10 to 15 percent or so of their household economy, household income on food. Um, during the 18th century, we're talking about closer to 40%. So food is huge. If you can break it, your good into the food market, that's where you can potentially make an enormous amount of money or impact how people live. So taxation is about revenue, but it's also about control. Right? So if a government, for example, wants people to go to university, they can make student loans tax-free. right? Um, if the government wants you to stop buying houses, they can put huge taxes on it or huge taxes on alcohol, cigarettes, or anything like that. If they want you to buy domestic cars rather than foreign cars, they can place taxes on some goods and um, not on other goods. And people in the 18th century understood that. So th the reason why uh, tea took off rather than coffee was purely because of taxation. So at the end of the 17th century, coffee was way more popular than tea. Right. It was just much more widely consumed, more widely liked. And that persists in the 18th century. But the problem with the British is that for the British was that coffee was largely produced outside of the British Empire or outside of British imperial control and trade routes. And so what they did is they taxed coffee and put lower taxes on tea to support the East India Company, which kind of been around for 100 years, but they wanted to see it grow more. And the East India Company had the potential to try to, and it eventually did, dominate the tea trade coming into Europe from China. And so it boosted the East India Company, uh, a domestic company, at the expense of knocking out other companies that were potentially bringing in coffee. And so tea takes off, right? And so by the time those things equal out and the British are producing coffee in vast quantities in the Caribbean and places like Jamaica, tea had taken over as a cultural commodity, right? And, and people were drinking tea and it kind of became part of the, the society. So in terms of it interacting with the government, it's, it's huge, right? Um, food security is another thing as well. Um, the price of bread is very much tracked. If the price of bread and staples goes up, there are riots, right? Um, inflationary pressures on these goods, the governments are always concerned. Um, governments, the imperial governments get involved because they want to control these very expensive commodities. They're always, you know, early days are trying to figure out how do we grow things like tea in the Atlantic world, right? Rather than having to bring it from China, which is a foreign power, or how do we get to control? They're trying to grow spices. This is how Kew Garden starts in London, is trying to figure out how to grow these things in different places around the world that the British can control. So um, that's part of the imperial project too. That's why we have breadfruit, right, in the Caribbean today. It's from the Polynesian. They bring it over thinking, oh, enslaved Africans will love this stuff. Um, it takes a lot longer to, to take off, but that's why in the Caribbean you can find things like breadfruit um, today. It's why India is the largest producer of tea. In the 18th century, India is not producing tea commercially. Um, that doesn't happen until the 19th century, and that's part of the British imperial project. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, all these sorts of things are 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 going on, but it's it's very much entwined uh, with with politics in Britain. You, you've touched on a lot of fascinating points. I'm sure we'll talk in more depth about them as we go further. And it was interesting thing you're talking about uh, tea. I, I think it was part of the because they switched in England. They switched from China to to India, and they started 
planting teas. I read read an article some time ago. There were even literary, I mean, there were writers describing tea as being particularly British, as a British thing, while it was an imported commodity. But let's talk about sugar and tea. It was a sign of wealth. It was a sign of luxury. Um, so ha, ha, and it was drunk in, in wealthy, let's say, circles. So how, how was it promoted to appeal to the general public? So how was um, it relegated, let's say, from, from aristocratic? Sure. So, so sugar's around um, you know, since ancient times, right? So it's in, in Europe and Greece and places like that. Um, it's added to medicines in particular as something people can consume. Um, certainly... Elizabeth I has sugar around and really wealthy people, right? So, but it's it's largely coming from the Mediterranean and parts of West Africa and so on. So it's expensive, right? So, but so there is a desire. And if you're poor, right, um, you'd love to have sugar. There's a desire for it. Tea comes a little bit later as a commodity, you know, well into the 17th century. It starts showing up a little bit. It had been around. I mean, you could, there are probably elements of it showing up, but commercially, it was available like in a London store, you know, um, towards the second half and the later um, 17th century. And it comes over initially via the Dutch East India Company. Um, the early imports were actually the, you know, the British importing it from, from them in small quantities. And it's expensive. And like all things that are initially super expensive, um, wealthy people have it and poor people want it. I mean, it's not you know, that much different than today, they see them consuming it and they imitate it. So to a large extent, it was about um, availability and scale. So once they were able to figure out um, how to produce vast quantities of sugar and access vast quantities of tea, then there was already to a large extent a pre-existing nucleus of a market that could start selling it to people. Then it becomes this kind of fascinating spiral, right? So the rich people, like tea is a great example. Um, and to a large extent, tea, to some extent, it was promoted as a um, medium for consuming sugar. So the kind of tea that people drank in the 17th century, same thing with coffee and hot chocolate, just tons and tons of sugar. And it just absolutely it was more like a syrup at times. And so tea's fascinating because it starts off as being, if you could have tea, that meant that you were kind of wealthy, right? Um, and they were sold as kind of medicines, like Samuel Pepys talks about his wife getting tea and it being something that's, you know, medicinal. Um, and there's a medicinal values, but like, but that's true of pretty much everything that shows up that's new and expensive. Oh, there must be a medicinal value. And then it becomes, you know, widely available and it turns out, you know, maybe it's not. And so um, tea to have it, like really cheap black tea to have it alone was enough, right? But then when it becomes more abundant, then um, more elite people try to find ways to make it more refined. So you could have um, different kinds of tea. So different kinds of tea start staggering through to the point you can get even like a dozen different kinds of tea by the mid 18th century and pay an absolute fortune for certain kinds of tea, like that elite London shops and so on that you could pay for. Um, so that comes in. But the other thing too is like how you drink it, right? So, um, you know, Wedgwood is a genius. Isaiah Wedgwood is a genius because porcelain is expensive coming over. So why not make British knockoffs? Right. So he makes British knockoffs for people to drink their tea. And then the the better thing, too, is, OK, it's very fragile and you just come up with new prints every few years. So you've got to get new stuff all the time. And so, you know, they taps into that having silver tea tongs or something like that makes you a little bit more elite in the way you can consume tea. And of course, you know, the, the greatest example of being elite in consuming tea is you drink it in the afternoon. You know, um, if you drink it in the afternoon, it means you don't have to have a, a job. Right. So if you're a lady and you want to demonstrate that you've reached a certain level of, you know, a social class, well, you show up and invite all your neighbors or whoever to tea, you know, um, to visit. They call it visiting and eventually becomes called tea time. Right. And it invites people over. It's a chance for you to show off your home, your wealth, um, your deportment, your lovely accent, you know, all the wonderful things around you. Um, but also the fact that you hold it at a time during which ordinary people would need to work, right? So um, that alone, it's a great thing. So you take this thing that's super inexpensive, but you make it complicated through ritual, right? So, and, and tea does that. But 
because tea can access different peoples and all these different levels, that's part of the reason of its popularity. Uh, and, and you you talked about this desire for consumption, and they talked about tea. It was interesting as you as you mentioned that there were some of these items had these support. I'm um, supposed they had a medicinal purpose, like there were communities who were advocating for the benefits of uh, consuming tobacco, having medical and medicinal properties. Yeah, it's supposed to it's supposed to cure your cough. At one point, there's there's treatises that come out that say, "Oh, it's really good for you if you have real problems breathing, smoke tobacco." Yeah, it's it's um, uh, there are coffee enemas were popular for a little while. Uh, most of these things are taking place when the goods are relatively rare. It's sort of like the more rare it is, the more you know medicinal it must be, and secret powers and so on. Mm -hmm. um, as, but very quickly, in the 18th century, when it becomes very widely available, um, they die off the idea of them being medicines um, or having medicinal purposes. People do talk about the healthiness of tea, and that one of the healthiness aspects of tea um, that persists is that it's better than drinking alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, but then you have people. Um, later on in the 19th century, complaining that, um, like William Cobbett complains famously that ordinary people are drinking tea and with sugar in the tea rather than drinking good English beer. Um, and that becomes a caloric thing. So you had the working class isn't drinking beer anymore, which has high calorie. There's you know those aspects of it, as opposed to tea, which has no calorie and sugar, which are relatively empty calorie. And they're, you know, the nutritionalist kind of debates about how tea is kind of destroying people. But but for the most part, most part, tea is um, popular as an alternative to alcohol. It's seen as much more moral, much more savory. Although people also, including um, John Wesley, complains about tea being, you know, an indulgence and and so on as well. The Methodists complain about that too. But for the for the for the most part, it's it's seen as relatively a benign sort of drink. I was born in a very, very small village in Iran myself. When when I was a kid, I do remember that my aunt, very rural area, uh, used to even eat small pieces of charcoal, thinking it had medicinal purpose. I was just surprised. Just uh, okay. black, black black coal. It would just she would just eat some small, you know, bits of bits of charcoal for a sore throat. <laughs> I, All right. When he said okay. the smoking, uh, you know, the, breathing the smoke of tobacco has medicinal purposes. Yeah, it kind of uh, sounded familiar to me. <laughs> anyway, I mean, they do yeah. use some of these things as um, um, gardeners pick them up as ways to kill weeds and things like insecticides, um, the caffeine in it, and also, you know, tobacco leaves and things like that. They, they do try different things. Um, and it shows up in gardening manuals and stuff. But by, I mean, I would say by the mid 18th century, a lot of that stuff's gone. Um, and tobacco is seen increasingly as something that you know it's recognized as an unhealthy habit. Um, people do start noticing if you drink 15 cups of coffee or tea, you will get jittery. <laughs> and it affects nervous disorder. I mean, they, they start to pick up on these things after a while. But yeah. But yeah, some of these things persist. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, what was the role of black market in procuring some of these commodities that you talk about in the book? Um, so there's two um types of black market that's operating right so there's there's the one in which the kind of forgeries um the adulteration of things so people go out in hedgerows and pull leaves and kind of crush them up and say oh it's tea right so there's that aspect of the black market and that is problematic so a lot of times they would try to turn different kinds of leaves um green by putting copper and different kinds of things that would upset and actually make it poisonous right so that's there's that kind of adulteration stuff that goes on, like fake tobacco, uh, tea itself, because eventually, you know, they're leaves, they're crushed leaves. It's hard to tell what's what. Um, so there is those kinds of forgeries that are going on, particularly tobacco and tea. Um, then the other black market, which is probably economically much more significant, is the um, black markets in which the goods are genuine, but they're coming from other um parts of the world or other imperial or european trade routes okay so for example all tea in this period comes from china right there is no there's no real alternative okay it's all coming from there all commercial tea coming in to britain is coming from from china through canton so that's the only option so there's the East India Company, British East India Company tea that comes over and that's the official legal tea because they have monopoly and they're allowed to sell it 
and that's taxed by the government because they go through the various processes of importing it into the docks. It's looked over, it gets taxed, and that's how it's sold, right? And that's how it's it's handled. But then there's also other um, East India companies and other European countries that are have license to trade in China, um, particularly most notice most notably the Dutch, who eventually who initially controlled the coffee and tea trades, right? So, but by the mid sort of 18th century, the East India Company from Britain is becoming more powerful and dominating the market. What the Dutch are offering is this literally the same tea, right? But it's not taxed by the British government. So that starts showing up and it's it's indistinguishable from British East India Company tea because they literally bought it from the same people in the same town in the same place or even the same merchant, right? So, but theirs is not taxed. So coming in that, what it does is it undercuts the East India Company because their their tea is taxed. And so that black market tea is huge. And at different times, it becomes dominant in terms of you know, a substantial portion of the tea that's being consumed is you know, this kind of Dutch um, black market tea. And probably the best example of how problematic that is um, are the uh, mainland American North American colonies. So if you were to go say in Boston in 1760, um, most of the tea that's being drunk, if not almost, virtually almost all of it, a, a huge chunk of it, is illegal tea. It's Dutch tea. It's it's rampant there because the Dutch have all sorts of places that they can run it through in the Caribbean that gets sent up to the point that, you know, it's not even really black market or the vast majority of the tea is this tea. And so one of the issues that becomes problematic, so the American colonists, um, the white American colonists who are there, probably per capita, it's been argued, drink as much, if not more tea than the English do. So it's super popular, huge market for, for these sorts of goods. And of course, the East India Company long wants to get control into this market, but they're being pushed out by the black market tea. The British government doesn't have a lot of control in the American colonies, so there's not a lot they can do about it. Um, but one of the things that shows up in the 1760s and 1770s is an opportunity for the East India Company to move into that market. So after um, the East India Company gains control, or at least taxation control of Bengal and areas like that, it becomes a mess, right? Historically, it's an absolute disaster for the people who are living there, there's starvation, it collapses, the, the share price of the East India companies, uh, um, you know, and plummeting fall. And so the East India Company is a great example of a, one of the early companies that are too big to fail. Right? So the government steps in in 1773 um, with Norris Regulating Act. And what that was meant to do is assert more government control over the East India Company through a series of deals and loans and you know, government oversight. And one of the parts of this package, right? So not unlike you know, bailout, bailout of an airline or a bank or something like that, is um, some favorable trade packaging things. So one of these things they're allowed to do is trade directly with the American colonies without having it being heavily taxed and going being taxed by the British on the way there. What that would do is would make the East India Company tea cheaper than the black market tea coming in from the Dutch. And so um, the East India Company is excited. It looks good for them. They can sell it to the Americans. But of course, the British and Americans during this period aren't getting on that well. And so the British famously, right after they passed this, this deal with the East India Company, they passed the Tea Act, which is to put a teeny tiny tax on the tea still keeping it cheaper than the Dutch black market tea, but sending the point to the Americans is, we can tax you if we want. And I bet you drink the tea because it's cheaper. So what do the Americans do? Well, it lands in Boston Harbor and the Sons of Liberties line up and they don't want to give the American colonists the chance to buy the cheap tea because the British could be proven, British government could be proven right. So they line up on the ships, they go up and they throw it all into Boston's Harbor in 73 and it's Boston's Tea Party. Right. So, I mean, it kind of shows how these commodities are so intertwined, I think, with politics, but how the empires all wrapped in and entwined with each other um, through these sorts of goods. Uh, but yeah, tea is a great example. Yeah. And of course, tea becomes a symbol of, you know, British imperialism. So Americans don't drink tea for a while. And I guess in some of the uh, visual representations of the British Empire, there was this queen drinking tea and there were slaves carrying uh carrying some commodities i think it was mainly food i came across that some time ago 
what, yeah. yeah, you talk about this conspicuous genre of consumption and also the class mobility, which I found extraordinary. The how how was the idea of consumption related to class mobility in in terms of consumption of exotic goods? So how were some shops markets associated with status? Um, so the 18th century famously is a period of the development of the middle class, right? So that's, you know, polite and commercial people, uh, that kind of idea that's been you know, promoted, you know, starting with Paul Langford, but earlier that in the, you know, the 1970s and 80s, this idea that, you know, 18th century was the century of the middle, emerging middle class. And one of the problems of being middle class is, and not an aristocrat, is that no one knows who you are. So, you know, if you're the Duke of Newcastle, Every time you walk into a room, it's a public space, they yell out, you know, Duke of Newcastle, right? So they all know who you are. It doesn't matter if you have bad manners to a large extent because you're the Duke of Newcastle. You have a title, you get to keep that title and, and so on. Your wife is the Duchess. Um, but what about, you know, um, everybody else who also has money, maybe not as much as the Duke, but in some cases pretty close, right? Uh, how do they distinguish themselves in some pauper on the street, right? They don't have a title. They don't have any of those sorts of trappings, so they want to distinguish themselves as unique. So what they do is they do that through consumption. So they can consume things like education, right? So get a better education, become better read and so on, go to the kind of the public schools and so on, um, learn how to dance properly, right? You go to the, the, the dance halls and so on, and you know the latest dances because you're taught by an Italian dance master. You buy the right clothes, fashion, all this sorts of stuff starts emerging because you want to distinguish yourself from the people who are one tier below you. And of course, middle class is everything from a family that might have, you know, a, you know, a few pounds of um, disposable income to someone that, you know, is as wealthy as a, a lady and a lord, right? So very wealthy people, but don't have titles. And so you have this huge range of, of, of people and they all want to distinguish themselves from one tier lower. So to sort of never... Does it never underestimate you know, the zeal of the recently converted, right? So if you've just made it there, you want to do everything you can to show I'm not like my neighbors two blocks over, I'm refined, right? So you have this huge desire and also a lot more disposable income. So one of the things that's taking place in the late 17th century and pours into the 18th century, um, you know, pre-industrial age, there's more disposable income largely because of what um, Gendavri's um refers to as the industrious revolution, right? So the idea that people are working more hours and longer, you know, longer days and so on to get more money, right? So they can buy more stuff. Well, what are they buying? Well, they're buying, if you're wealthy, you know, you're buying, you know, the Wedgwood tea set, you know, or well-to-do, you're buying the Wedgwood tea set. If you're really wealthy, you're buying a whole, you know, pagoda that you might put out in your tea garden to show how refined you are, you're drinking tea. And if you're poor, you can still buy sugar and tea and have that small luxury and tobacco. People who can't afford meat by the end of the 18th century can afford tobacco, sugar, and tea, right? It's in those sorts of households these things are showing up. And then later on, you know, cotton merges into that too, but um, that's another story in, entirely. But for the middle class, it's a way to distinguish yourself. So if you, you basically are trying to buy the trappings of, of wealth, and it's not just enough to go out and, you know, carry a big bag of gold and say, look at all my money, right? Because that's crass, right? So you've got to go out and spend it wisely. And to show that you are, in fact, um, you know, worldly and thoughtful, and food is a way to do that, not just by buying tea, but buying the right kind of tea, not just by having tea, but drinking it the right way by having, we talked about earlier about having visitors over at a certain time of day, but then, you know, tea, there's a ritual of tea, you know, the, the host will pour for you. I know, does she know who to pour for first, right? How is her, you know, what does she talk about during these conversations, right? So how does she hold herself? Does she know how to do that? And food is a great way to do that too, because people start having people over for dinner. So do they know how to seat people? Are they savvy enough to, you know, have the latest dishes? I mean, putting something out like, um, you know, Indian curry shows that oh, I'm a worldly person, you know, no one may want to eat it. It may not look anything like what's consumed in South Asia, but no one knows, right? So you say, look at me, I'm so refined. I'm eating, you know, worldly things the same way people do today, right? So they might say, look, I'm so um, 
complicated because I eat caviar or I'm so complicated because I have French wine rather than a new world wine, right? So all these sorts of things that are in play that we would recognize as normal, you know, um, today are very much coming into play in the 18th century in Britain. So uh, that's why the, the printed advertisements sometimes are a little bit laughable um, to look at it. You have these sort of um, bubble speech bubbles coming out of a group of men smoking tobacco. And one says, oh, this is really great tobacco. Though, Yes, so refined. Then the other one says, oh, where did you buy it? Well, I bought it at such and such tobacco, right? <laughs> and it's it's very simplistic, but the same sorts of things um, playing on people's social anxieties and fears of acceptance and so on are, are all at play in the 18th century the same way they are today. Yeah, yeah, and I think that comparison with today was quite relevant. When when you were describing it, the first thing that came to my mind was caviar. Um, man, and you rightly mentioned, and there is this whole culture about drinking wine, even in some so, so, some some circles of people. You know, they drink expensive wine. How to drink it? What sort of glass to use? Yeah, um, yeah. They're debating. I mean, already in the 18th century, they're debating: does um, tea taste better in true Chinese porcelain or Wedgwood? Uh, earthenware. There are debates, right? Mm. And the fact that you could have that debate, right, shows it's a real upper middle class problem, yeah. right? So that, that you're deeply invested in the outcome mm. right, of this debate itself shows a position of class and leisure. Mm. And it's a big part of what people are trying to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, your book is filled with fascinating pictures from 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 from, from the print culture uh and even the the cover is quite fascinating i think it's from gilray am i right john gilray the, the I, I, I think so yeah I, it's, it's embarrassingly i can't remember there's so many of it but i think it is a there's gilray so one. many that's yeah. right yeah so gilray's you... in certainly a lot of them yeah, so yeah i might have to go back and revise that answer <laughs> but i'm i'm pretty sure i'm, sure, I'm pretty sure it is gilray mm. So can you talk about the role of print culture increasing the demand and also how was imperialism manifested in this in, in advertisements, especially in England's um, colonies? Sure. Um, so the the cover of the book, the, those sorts of things are more satirical prints. And so they don't really drive food consumption. I think for an, an illustration like that, I think it highlights that food is such a universal thing. It's a way to make the political message universally understandable, right? So in that particular thing, they, they're they feasting on um, a feast of gold and it's an anti-taxation uh, print. And so there's another one that I use as John Bull ground down. So John Bull is like the every man. Um, the average taxpayer, and they have him in a meat grinder, and he's being ground down, and what's coming out of his body is gold for greedy, um, you know, the greedy treasury. Um, so there's a, there's all sorts of yeah. So there's all sorts of examples like that, or when they're trying to depict Native Americans as being particularly brutish in the American Revolution, and by association, um, the British government that's uh, allying with them there's a famous print that's called um, the allies that shows up and it's a group of native americans and um british politicians sitting together um eating a colonist um and using their skulls to drain out blood it's very brutal and, and gruesome but again so food because it's such a um universal item that people can relate to it, it plays out really well in satirical prints so, or when they're trying to show French poverty, um, they always show them eating snails and frogs and things where the British um, John Bull is, you know, fat and plump with a big frothy beer and a huge piece of roast beef, right? Chomping it away to show that British are prosperous and so on. But but to, to your point about the advertisements, um, print culture takes off in the 18th century for two reasons. One, it becomes deregulated at the end of the 17th century. And that's why newspapers take off. Um, the government doesn't regulate it the way it did during the 17th century to try to control it. Um, and there's a, already a pre-existing you know, sort of demand, but it just skyrockets in, in the 18th century. But print culture is also critical specifically for food because uh, during the 18th century, producing cheap visual illustrations becomes possible. So a lot of these shops that are trying to uh, bring in trade start grabbing onto these sorts of images 
just to make you know their packaging a little bit more interesting. Um, they use them as receipts. They're called trade cards. Um, they don't really call them that so much in the 18th century. They're about the size of a business card or post-it note sometimes a little bit bigger, or it's really kind of the image at the head of letterhead that they use for, for bills and so on. And because they're moving more towards a credit-based economy for these goods, the necessity of having um, stationary to say how much you owe at the end of the month becomes that much important, more important. And having a nice little cheap little image at the top of it is quite nice uh, thing to have. And so Trade cards go from something that's very luxurious, luxurious at the beginning of the 18th century to by the end of the 18th century, they're ubiquitous. Shops that are in, you know, provincial towns that have very little, well, not like not little, but modest amounts of stock have trade cards. Um, so one of the things I looked at um, in particular, because we don't, they survive largely because a collector in the 19th century thought they were interesting as opposed to necessarily representative. But one of the things that what I did is I looked at the trade cards and the addresses of the shops and then um, cross-listed those against um, insurance records. And so if you have an insurance policy, usually you list the value of the goods that are in your shop because if it burns down, that's the most important thing you have. And it's very clear that shops that have vast amounts of goods, like Fortnum Mason has their own card, but also, you know, something two blocks away that has a relatively modest footprint also has trade cards. And so these trade cards become prolific and you get increasingly standardized images. So if you're Fortnum Mason, you can go through and have a special trade card made just for you. But if you're sort of, you know, Bob's corner tea shop, probably not. And so printing presses start offering a catalog of images that you can add to your business. And it's not just grocers that are doing this. You know, rat catchers have trade cards. I mean, they're all over the place. And these images come in and they become to sort of codify what people associate with these goods. So um, slavery becomes very much attached to tobacco production. So you can see that images of Native Americans smoking tobacco becomes associated with tobacco production. Um, tea becomes very associated with production in China and Chinese images. But also in a lot of these too, there's oftentimes a British ship in the background showing that it's coming over via trade routes. Um, images of East India Company's house, so the East India Company's headquarters are become kind of standard imagery and stock imagery and these sorts of things that constantly, I guess it's sort of imperialism at the point of purchase. It constantly reminds people that when they buy these things and see these images as these aren't British, right? These aren't homegrown. These are come to you by courtesy of these trade routes far from lands far away through British imperial controls, either of the lands or the trade routes that are bringing them over. It's a regular reminder of that to the point that people do start changing them when slavery becomes out of fashion. There are trade cards in which people will show freed slaves and say, we buy, we don't buy enslaved sugar. So it's, it's very much attached to those sorts of images. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question about coffee and coffee houses. Uh, but I guess I'll ask another question, which is relevant to print culture in a way, which is okay. the role of cookbooks, the role of women and cookbooks in projecting a national identity. You talk about the example of Yorkshire pudding um, and also the role of cookbooks in, you know, being sort of a didactic text for class instruction, how morality lessons, how women should, for example, behave. So can you talk about that first, please? Yeah, sure. Um, so cookbooks have been around you know, forever, right? So um, and the difference between sort of um, medical books and cookbooks are really blurred in earlier periods. By the time you get to the 18th century, the sort of cookbooks that one might buy or be able to find at the beginning of the century, um, if they are in, a lot of times they're written in French, if they are um, in English or translations or they're foreign cooks, and they're more professional manuals. Right. So the same way that a professional manual is a physician or something like that, uh, and they're around. But like most professional manuals right, during the 18th century, because there is um, wide literacy grow, growth of literacy and print culture and also the growth of the middle class, people are looking at how do I do this on the cheap? So the second most popular genre of print culture after religious tracts were do-it-yourself self-help guides. Right. So how to be your own lawyer, how to be your own accountant, how to be your own physician, how to cure this all become very, very popular sorts of books. And cookery books are part of that. 
So professional chefs don't jump into it right away. The people who do jump into it, however, are um, basically middle class, lower middle class women. So you have people like Raffold, who used to be um, uh, a servant, um, you know, the kind of the main housekeeper in a house and then married the gardener and goes off and sets up um, a coffee house um, in, in Manchester. But you also have people like Hannah Glass, um, who also kind of tries her hand. And these are entrepreneurial women that have a lot of interest. So Raffle tries to do, um, she also, also gives cooking classes to gentry women too at one point. Um, Hannah Glass is a dressmaker at one point. You know, they try different things to survive, right? They're using different ways to make it through. But um, it becomes very popular with the idea of either a housekeeper or a middle-class woman giving sort of advice. It's not, it's very similar to the kind of cookbook we might find today. It has a preface saying, here's my journey to why I decided to write this. You know, I made these recipes for my children. I think you'll enjoy it with your children too. Or like you reader, you know, I wanted to have a fancier dinner parties and found myself in London. I had no idea what to do. And that's who they're selling it off to, this newly emerging middle-class woman who might have a servant or two, um, but don't necessarily run big elite households, aristocratic households. And as a genre, they take off. These are bestsellers. And we know that partly because when they originally published the cookbooks in the mid-18th century, they're self-published essentially by subscription. But then major London publishers, the same people who publish like Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, are publishing cookbooks. Right. So all these major publishers kind of latch onto the cookbook and they're more like magazines to some extent in the sense that they come out with a new edition every couple of years. And it's always new and improved, new and improved, um, new recipes, even though the author is long dead, no longer controls the rights to the book. Like Hannah Glass, for example, her name does not appear as the author on the frontispiece until um, she's already sold the rights to it. So it's a decision by publishers to heavily emphasize the fact of who she is and make her into a brand name, which is kind of interesting. In some cases, um, there's like Charlotte Mason's cookbook. It's not real clear. She exists, right? So um, some of these authors too, it's not real clear if they exist or if they write them. And then you end up with um, even professional chefs trying to and it, um, jump into the trade by this point, and they start publishing these kind of popular cookbooks. And the first thing they have to do is kind of pay homage to these female authors and say, well, but if you want to eat like you would at the London Tavern, elite restaurant, here are my secret recipes that I make for the good and the great. There's no real evidence that any, like a lot of these people who are publishing things did anything except lend their name to a group of recipes that somebody else put together. But they put their name on it, they write the preface. Um, and it, you know, you can, I guess, as a consumer, you buy it thinking, oh, wow, you know, this is the, you know, the tavern that hosted, you know, the Lord Mayor's dinner or something like that, or, you know, a famous admiral that comes back or a great political feast or something like that. I too can have that. In fact, um, one of the chefs that puts together the Lord Mayor of London's dinner, which includes royalty visiting, he actually sells the recipes or supposed recipes, right, of everything he made. So you too could eat like a king, right? So, um, and they took, you know, this is the favorite, you know, the famous um, putting that, you know, Queen Charlotte liked and, you know, and all that kind of stuff too. And it, it feeds into it. So it's about accessibility, Um but it's also about, as you said, this kind of codifying about what is British cuisine, because if you look at the sort of discussions that take place in these books, there's a lot of, um, there is, uh, an appeal, because they're popular, there's appeal to popular sentiment. They're trying to move cookbooks, right? And one of the ways you do that is make it seem like you are like your readers or consumers and you're helping them, right? So there's oftentimes a, um, a portrait or an image of the author. There's um, one set of uh, cookbooks that I talk about in my book in which the authoress's uh, picture changes <laughs> over time, right? And she doesn't age. Sometimes she's younger, sometimes she's older, and it depends on how they're trying to, to pitch it, whether it's sort of advice to um, appear on how to you know, cook something or a device to like a, a niece or a nephew kind of move to it. But national cuisine, uh, to a large extent, starts emerging from this. Now, it isn't to the extent that we can talk about a, a true national cuisine that we might be able to talk about in the 20th century or even parts of the 19th. But there are certain elements of what 
it means to be eating um, English food and increasingly Scottish at the end of the 19th and early, or the end of the 18th and early uh, 19th century. There are a number of Scottish cookery book authors that claim this is real Scottish food and this is how you make a haggis. And they'll quote um, Robert Burns and, and so on as well as part of the kind of nostalgia sort of thing. But um, the elements of what was supposedly you know, British or English cookery had elements to it. So one of the things they like to do is give names to specific dishes. Um, so like, you know, um, particular kinds of cookies or desserts and so on. And Yorkshire pudding is, is one of these sorts of dishes. So Yorkshire pudding, I mean, it's pretty basic. I mean, it's just, you know, people probably made it forever, right? So it's just drippings off a roasted piece of meat that goes and the fat drips onto a batter that makes it, you know, and cooks it, right? So it's you know, not overly complicated. But then there's debates about what is a Yorkshire pudding? And so by publishing, you know, the official recipe and something as prolific as Hannah Glass gives a notion of this is what it is. This is what I'm expecting. So when I go to Yorkshire, this is what I'm expecting is my Yorkshire pudding. Um, or I too, you know, I'm in London and my family's from Yorkshire. So I want to have Yorkshire puddings. This is what people are expecting when they come to your house. And as we know, um, in the 21st century, particularly from, you know, immigrant or ethnic cuisine, what people are expecting is not <laughs> what people really eat, right? So there's a huge, huge difference between what is commercially advertised as you know south asian food that you might buy at a marks and spencer versus what a south asian family might eat in their home right so it's you know a huge divergence but what they're selling in these sort of cookbooks just like they are in marketing today is if you eat this this is kind of a taste of that culture and you see that in in you know in the packaging and branding I mean, the first curry house shows up at the beginning of the 19th century and they absolutely decorate it um, with South Asian imagery to give you the full experience, not unlike if you went into a curry house in London today. I mean, you go in and it has a certain decor that goes along along with it. It's the experience they're selling. But anyway, back to the issue of um, national cuisine, different elements show up. So one of the elements is the idea during the Napoleonic Wars is that a good housewife is someone who has economy. Right, is, is frugal, uh, looks for value and economy the same way the state is looking for value and economy and how they run the state. The housewife does this over her own home. So less dishes, less ornate, but then in times of plenty, that, that changes. And uh, let me ask you about coffee as well. That That's a very, um, to me, I find it a very fascinating discussion. Coffee and coffee houses and their role in creating a political discourse, especially in, in England? Um, sure. So coffee houses are, are fascinating because coffee is relatively new commodity that shows up on the world scene much later than tea um, or, or even um, tobacco. And it comes to um, England as a, essentially in its Arabian form, right? Via um, Istanbul, right? So via the Ottoman Empire. So it's very popular in um, you know, sort of the Middle East, for a variety of reasons. And it's interesting, it, the coffee house shows up in those sorts of spaces. It's a place where you would go out socially, it's overwhelmingly male, they get together and they drink coffee and every single ruler wants to ban it at one point or, or another. So um, it's banned at one point, they try to ban it in Mecca, Cairo, there's you know riots over it. And you know Charles II tries to do the same thing, right? So, and, you know, and tries to ban coffee. He passes a royal decree and he's, you know, famously says that it's, you know, this kind of pernicious thing. And he's really upset that people are getting together and, you know, kind of drinking this, this, this coffee uh, because it, um, what did he call it? You know, he calls coffee houses the great resort of idle and disaffected persons. So what he means is a bunch of guys get together, drink coffee, and what do they talk about? News of the day, politics. And you know, if you're a you know if you're a ruler and a king, you don't want people talking about politics. And of course, you drink coffee and you know, they wake up, right? <laughs> it's a stimulant, and then they can keep going for a long time, and they get really really wound up. And this is a concern. So he tries to do it, fails the same. 
thing that happens in Cairo and Mecca and Istanbul, right? And it, it fails and coffee still takes off. But the idea of it being a social gathering place um, comes from um, British traders trading at Istanbul. They bring it back. They set up initially coffee stalls. And then the first coffee houses show up very quickly afterwards. And it's a big social space. And if you have a lot of um, men who can afford coffee, right, so they're usually literate as a result, it becomes a place where they hang out. And if you want them to come to your coffee house and they're there talking about politics, well, then you're going to give them free newspapers. Not unlike if you show up in a Starbucks today, they give you free Wi-Fi, right? So that's their version of free Wi-Fi as we have, you know, 30 different newspapers you can read. And so almost all images of coffee houses from the 17th century to the 18th century, when they show scenes of there's newspapers, people are reading. And they're at long tables, they're chatting, they're reading, and they're not even really drinking coffee necessarily. There's a rum punch that's really popular. I mean, all sorts of other things are consuming, but they call them coffee houses. And it's an integral part of the political culture of the day. They refer to, you know, the, when they're talking about in Parliament, about public opinion, they talk about, you know, coffee house politicians. Um, uh, people like Gilray and others, when they're depicting parliamentarians, MPs, they oftentimes in a comical way set them in a coffee house where they're smoking tobacco and discussing the news of the day and, and arguing about these sorts of things. So it's an integral part of you know, the culture and facilitating these sorts of conversations that are taking place publicly. Tea does the same thing for women. Um, tea is consumed by men and women, but it's more of a domestically consumed item. So um, depictions of women having tea together oftentimes have them reading newspapers and talking about news of the day as well, um, either with other women or with men and women. Um, and another important part of your book is travel documents. You, you, you talk about that travel documents length, and then you have some examples, different decorative objects such as Indian cabinets, bamboo chairs, Asian porcelains chopsticks. Can you talk about how foreigners were stereotyped as uncivilized with reference to uh, their culinary history of food or their ways of consumption? Sure. Um, it's probably not as elaborate as we get to the 19th century. So like, chopsticks in the 18th century aren't seen as uncivilized the way that they become seen as uncivilized as time um, goes on. Um, but these sorts of commodities were seen as or these sorts of goods and objects were seen as evidence of sophistication. So in the 18th century, a lot of the travel documents are talking about to what extent is the society um, civilized? And for them, that meant sophistication and elaboration and so on. And there's a term that's used by Edmund Burke. He refers to it as the great map of mankind. So it's the... British are largely Scottish Enlightenment, which becomes, you know, kind of the, the stock British response to all this is there's lots of information about the world coming on. And the question that they're asking is, why is the world so different? It's, it's that it's really that's the question. And from that, we get the modern social sciences. People you know write about sociology and economic um, economics, modern history. These are the you know three university professors sitting in their um, university situations in Scotland, writing and writing lectures and sort of trying to make sense of all this stuff that's that's coming in. And part of this, of course, is is food fits into it. Um, but also lots of material objects. This is the same period that they're writing about all this stuff. It's the same period of things that like the British Museum are being founded. And there's also private museums as well. And there's an expectation when Cook goes on his voyages that he'll bring back loads of artifacts and they're all sort of dumped off into a series of museums in London. The, the main one is the Laverian, which is a private museum, but also in the British Museum too. And they create these spaces and they're um, unlike museums today, you're allowed to touch everything. They encourage people to come in and they, you know, they, they touch the, you know, Tahitian drums. Um, they touch Cherokee dress items and so on. And it's this very tangible, real way of engaging with these cultures. And what I try to argue in the, the book is that food becomes these sorts of things too. So not so much coffee, tea, and tobacco, but cooked and produced dishes. So um, edible artifacts. And something like curry becomes not just something like, isn't that interesting? Or, oh, it's curry and we like it, it tastes good. It becomes a symbol of you know, British um, engagement with South Asia. 
even though it has nothing to do with what's actually being consumed in South Asia, it's sold as authentic. And the word authentic or the Indian way and authenticity, all these sorts of, you know, sort of key indicators that this is a real item, it's how they're selling it. It's very rarely um, seen as something, well, this tastes really good. You should eat it because of that. It's like, no, this is the true way to consume these foods. This is how you make the rice. This is how you make this particular kind of dish. And so that's sort of the appeal, the kind of take me away, consume it. It's a way of another sensory way of engaging with these cultures and putting it out on a table with multiple dishes, the way that they would serve food in a middling household might be a way to signify to guests that you're a sophisticated, worldly sort of person. Um, that might go with it. Or maybe you put it in an Indian design porcelain dish is again, another way of using material culture to, to engage with that. And so to some extent, some of the recipes, not, certainly not the majority or anything like that, but some of the recipes that are in these sort of cookbooks or offered in places where you can eat are um, the appeal is this sort of exotic engagement with, a, with another place in the same way that one might buy a piece of furniture or um, chopsticks or something like that. Mm. And there's this term in your book, imperial ingestible. Uh, can you tell us what, what what you mean by this phrase? Um, sure. So I I use it as a way to get around the debate of what is or was not is not food, right? So um, in modern, you know, physicians or dietitians or whatever argue what counts as food. You know, sugar a food or is it a drug? right? Is coffee food or is it a drug because it's mostly caffeine? Is it a caffeine delivery system, right? So um, and I didn't want to get into that because people at the time in the 18th century don't debate those sorts of things as much. So if you were to go into a grocery back then, it's all kind of piled in in the same sort of places, right? So where people are consuming them. So by using ingestibles, it's not a term that's used at the time. It's my kind of way of um, sidestepping that sort of debate. So I can look at a variety of goods that include something you're breathing in like tobacco smoke, um, something you're, you know, sugar doesn't matter if it's a drug or not, you're still ingesting it. So it's these sorts of things people are taking into their bodies. Um, that's, a, I guess, kind of a sidestep to those sorts of debates, engaging with it. Um, and there are, you know, I could go and talk about, ask you a lot of questions about the book, but, you know, we are limited for time. So let me just ask one final question. And you talked about the role of food, how it's advertised, the role of cookbooks. But what about consuming food and uh, that were coming from colonies or issues of food immorality? Because there are examples of boycott of some food products on moral grounds. So can you talk about this aspect of your book, please? Um, sure. So the first sort of widespread consumer boycotts take place um, first in the the American colonies over tea, like I mentioned earlier, to avoiding tea because it's seen as you know this imperial good, right? So, um, but where it really takes off in Britain is over sugar, and this looking at and I and I talk about sugar and the sugar boycotts um, really for for two reasons. Uh, First, it highlights how much people associated these goods with imperial practices. Because a big question about all this sort of material is, okay, I mean, yeah, they put pictures of um, some American Indians on tobacco trade cards, um, and they talked about the East India Company when they're talking about tea in Parliament. But, you know, just because you go to a store that's called such and such empire of goods doesn't mean you're thinking about the empire when you're consuming it. Right. So are people really I mean, there's there's clues that people are conscious of it. But to what extent are people on a widespread scale, ordinary people conscious that when they're consuming tea, it's coming from it's it's a result of a series of imperial decisions and widespread trade routes and everything else and how it gets there and what this has to do with um, their lives. Sugar is a great example that sort of puts to bed those sorts of questions. In that um, after the American Revolution, there is this kind of, uh, kind of sitting down and thinking about what does it mean to be part of the British Empire? Uh, because you know, Britain just lost, it oftentimes advertised itself as a free-loving, wonderful, Protestant, open-minded society. Um, and that's what made them different than places like France. 
But then another group of people said, well, we're freer and more open-minded and they won, right? So what does that mean to be British? And there's a lot of discussion about um, what does it mean to have a British empire? And what are these sorts of things? Because Britain's empire with the loss of the mainland colonies, it meant, and it, this, this shift had taken place a generation earlier, um, it meant that the British empire was an empire of conquest, not so much colonization. Okay, so, you know, eventually there would be Australia, um, New Zealand would come into play and so on. But, you know, in 17, you know, mid 1780s, it's looking pretty clear that the vast majority of people living in the British imperial control were South Asian, right? And after that, um, outside of Britain, you're looking at Africans, right? Enslaved Africans. And so there's there were, of course, people that were opponents of imperial expansion. There were, of course, people who were opponents of slavery before this period, but it really takes off as a widespread social movement. And it takes, in the way it finds its origins or way it finds its initial appeal is primarily through evangelical Protestants and as a, it's a moral moment and it's um, immoral. And it particularly appeals to uh, middle-class women who during this period carve out their role or position in society as this sort of um, protectors of morality. Right. So to some extent, there's a lot of debate amongst historians to which women um, you know, seek this out, to, to what extent are they seeking it out, to what extent is it thrust upon them by men who are trying to um, circumscribe them to not get in politics. But what becomes very clear is a lot of women um, embrace that role to critique slavery. So they say, OK, slavery is immoral. Right. And we're looking after the morality of the, the nation. Now, these women are, to be clear, are not anti-imperial. Right at all. It's not a moment of like, oh, imperialism is better. There are people who are anti-imperial, but being an abolitionist and wanting to get rid of slavery does not make you an anti-imperialist. Uh, because in the same tracks, they also talk about colonizing Africa and you know and helping these people. Um, and you know, you know, you know, they're the same people, right? So who are against slavery but have no problems. Um, you know, setting up colonies and you know, portraying it as a helpful sort of thing. But in reality, you know, a whole different other things are at play here. So they're not anti-imperial. So what they do, don't like, obviously, is slavery. And they um, look very carefully at, like, how can they get involved, right? So they can't run for parliament, right? They can't vote. Uh, they can't, they're very limited in what they can do. But what they are by this time are consumers, Right. They are, um, women are massive consumers of goods, right? Um, particularly food-related goods. Women are doing most of the shopping, as is evident in a lot of the grocer's records. They run these things on credit. They're buying a lot of sugar. They're buying coffee, tea, tobacco. And so they're in a position to say, what's the number one commodity that's important into Britain um, that's produced by slaves? Well, that's sugar. Undoubtedly, sugar. And so very quickly, um, almost immediately in the 80s, when they start talking about sort of the, the you know, what to do with the empire, and um, and it's usually through sermons and so on, very quickly women latch onto it, and it's referred to as blood sugar, right? So the idea of you are, you know, there is no difference between, as it's said by multiple um, people at the time, and this becomes kind of a mantra, there's no different than, you're no different if you um, are a slave owner than you are if you're the person um, willingly and knowingly consuming the goods that the slave made. No different. You, part you participate in the crime, as they would say. And so by buying sugar, you're propping up slavery, and you're, as a result, an immoral person. And so that idea really takes off to the point that we're talking about, you know, 100,000 plus families probably are not, or at least saying they're not consuming sugar. Um, it becomes the basis of organization of these boycotts, which becomes the basis of the abolition and of slavery. Well, first the slave trade and later slavery movements. And it, it does quite well. Now, there's very little evidence that it actually impacts the price of sugar because there's other things going on um, with the wars with revolutionary France and later on with Napoleon that affect the price of sugar a lot more. But what it does, and is the case with a lot of boycotts, is that it raises awareness. It, they bring, they push it hard enough that it gets to the point that if you consume sugar, you are taking making a political act. 
So the consumption of sugar becomes an unavoidable political act in which you consume it because you say, I don't have a problem with slavery, or you don't consume it because you have a problem with slavery. There's no avoidance, right? It's too ubiquitous of a good. Um, it's all over the place. It's in everything. So either you either avoid it or you don't. There's no way to say, well, I'm just not political. It's just not part of, you know, I don't really care, right? It's that you have to choose. And that's the beauty and the power of a boycott, right? Making people have to choose and become political who aren't political. And women are really good about this because they are consuming particularly tea. And as I said earlier, tea has a lot of sugar in it. So you put out your sugar bowl. And so if you're Wedgwood and a savvy um, promoter of all, you know, things that you can sell related to tea, well, what do you do? Well, uh, you make sugar bowls that say things like, don't eat sugar because it supports slavery. So you can do your virtue signaling as a woman having people over to tea and you put on an empty sugar bowl right in the middle and you frown at anybody who asks for sugar. And if you're really kind of savvy, you put up the Wedgwood sugar bowl that says, I'm not gonna consume sugar because I'm a good person. And the, the ratio they come up with is for every six families that don't eat sugar, one slave is freed. And so they would show that classic image of a slave on his or her knees. And a number of other people take off um, that kind of idea too. And sugar bowls become very fashionable um, that says the empty sugar bowl. It's a, a great virtue signal of the sort of person you are and the sort of pressure you're placing on other people because you're in a group, these are socially consumed beverages and someone says, oh, could you pass the sugar? And everyone can scowl at you by saying, oh, you know, you're an immoral person. Um, and it becomes a big part of the, the push um, by associating goods. And it's successful in the sense that it raises awareness and becomes a major player in the later group that manages to abolish um, the slave trade. Fascinating example. Um, before we end this conversation, is there any other project you're currently working on? Um, well, so I'm working on a couple of projects. One comes directly out of this one. I was struck by, particularly with the sugar boycotts, how much of the um, sort of propaganda or the stories were geared towards children. So as children, as consumers, but also as children, as the kind of the next uh, generation that would be expected to manage and run the empire. And so there's a, I'm interested particularly in those sorts of books and how children are increasingly catered for at places like the British Museum or later on the London Zoo, um, offering sort of family rates and things like that to bring kids in. And so I'm interested in what they're trying to teach these kids. It's very much aimed, this material is very much aimed at sort of the large extent middle-class um, British children, but these are the kind of generation that will eventually run things in Victorian times. So looking at how they're educated and told about empires. So, um, one project I'm working on, and then the other one that's a little bit further, more further along, is looking at how news uh, moves across the Anglophone world from newspapers from the early 17th century until the time of the telegraph. So how does a news story from Virginia reach Kolkata? Right. So how does uh, you know a story from you know London get to Charleston? And looking at how the world looks if we set aside physical geography in favor of um, time it takes stories to get from places to place and looking at how the world looks like in terms of um, um, connectedness in that sort of way. Fascinating topics. I hope to be able to talk to you soon after those books uh, have been published. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> And thank you very much for accepting this invitation and speaking with us about your book. Thank you. Thanks for having me.